Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who's always thinking about smart cities and in my spare time, I want to know what makes a successful smart city. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the powers of business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Charles Anderson, founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates. Welcome Charles and how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing today? Oh, it's an interesting Saturday morning and thank you for coming on in such short notice. So what have you been up to since we last spoke? Well, we've been spending a lot of time recently working on a new smart cities report. So I've been working in collaboration with JLL, the commercial real estate firm, and we've just released a new white paper entitled Smart City Success, Connecting People, Prop Tech and Real Estate. So that's been keeping me quite busy, I would say, over the past few months, because it involves not only just doing the primary research, but we interviewed around maybe 30 people around the different smart cities ecosystem, everybody from government officials across Asia to some of the leading systems integrators, technology vendors, smart cities representatives, so the whole gamut, and even the investment community as well. So we've got a really diverse group of insights to see what is the current status of smart cities. So given that you're busy with the report and you have been building towards this, what are the main themes of the report and who are its intended audience? Well, the audience is quite diverse. Obviously, with JLL, they're going to want to talk to a lot of their customers, but they understand it's all about the ecosystem. So it isn't just their customers. It's the technology vendors that are providing some of the solutions. It's the investment community that invests in their projects. And a lot of it is to just sort of create some thought leadership and saying, this is where we are today, and this is what we need to do to move smart cities forward in the future you know, and really capitalize on it. Regarding the themes on it, I mean, I wanted to take a little bit of a different stance on this. A lot of these reports will come out and it'll be an evangelist saying how great everything is and how it's going to be even better in the future. And you've known me long enough to know that I'm, I'm much more of a pragmatist. And so I wanted to really just understand, you know, what is going on and what do they mean? And I find it very confusing when you look at the market. Smart cities mean different things to different stakeholders. So the first thing I wanted to do is understand who those stakeholders are and how they interpret and what they want out of smart cities. The next thing I wanted to look at is what's holding us back. Because let's face it, we all remember back 2014 and 2015, when pretty much every government organization got together with a bunch of technology vendors to a group photo and said, we're going to create City X as a smart city. Um, so next thing you know, we've built up a thousand smart cities worldwide. We built up all this hype, yet we're really not seeing a lot of the benefits yet. So I want to understand what's held us back from doing that. But then also, I really wanted to say, well, what are the next level of opportunities? So, okay, we're not where we thought we'd be. What are the opportunities now and what would they be in the future? And that could be opportunities for the cities, but also looking at different types of technology solutions and some of the future enablers. So things like AI, drones, what will the potential impact of 5G be on this going forward? And then, of course, this obviously give people ideas of best practice, because while we're not reaching maybe some of the aspirations we thought we would hit by now, we are seeing some really interesting initiatives and best practice being deployed across the region in pretty much every country. So can you briefly talk about the findings from the report? Yeah, I think at the end, we came down, there's really three key findings. The first one is, and this shouldn't be too surprising, but actually people don't understand it a lot. It's about people. It's not technology that are going to drive smart cities. And it's the same thing when you look at things like Internet of Things and digital transformation. We have the technology to do whatever we want today. So it's actually more people, organizational issues, lack of collaboration that holds us back. So you got to involve your citizens, the businesses, your government employees, engage different stakeholders from the government, from the IoT ecosystem. 
And a lot of it's not about driving technological change. It's about driving cultural change. And one of the guys we spoke to about this is the guy who heads up Taipei City's PMO, so Chen Yu Li. Um, he's also the Secretary General for the Go Smart, which is the Global Organization of Smart Cities initiative. And he gave a great quote. He said, culture is the first thing you need to deal with when you want to implement something different in the public sector. Technology is not the most difficult part. And they're pretty far ahead when it comes to smart cities. So he's had more experience trying to deliver this. And he understands how important driving the cultural change is to make these cities successful. So the second thing we really looked at and we came up with as a main finding out of this is there's a lot of hype. It's important that we take a step back and focus on reality. First of all, you know, everyone loves doing their massive forecasts. I and mean, when I started looking into the forecasts, I'll admit I was quite amused initially. The first thing I found was some good stats where it looked positive and I was quite happy with the numbers that were coming out because it made sense. So I looked at some of the numbers from IDC. And if you looked at 2018, IDC said the market was worth about $81 billion and they forecast that to be worth 158 by 2022. So that's basically roughly going doubling in size in about four years. So for me, that was pragmatic. But then the next one I saw was from another leading analyst firm, Frost & Sullivan. And they say it's going to be worth $2 trillion by 2025. And I'm trying to figure out is how is IDC at $158 billion, and then Frost & Sullivan's at $2 trillion only a few years later. So I started doing more research. And then depending on the firms you would look at, you'll see forecasts ranging from $220 billion all the way up to $2.7 trillion which means the forecasts are all over, which means we just don't really understand what it is. So we're building up a lot of hype. What I like to say is if you want a smart city forecast, you want it to be a certain number, just look, you'll probably find somebody that says that number. It doesn't mean any of them are actually accurate yet. I tend to lead towards the more pragmatic approach. So I think IDCs is probably a closer one on that. The other thing we found on the hype is more about 5G, AR, VR drones. We're getting a lot of excitement around this. It's more complex to deploy these things than we thought. And the final finding we had in the report is real estate is really the heart of smart cities. And it's where a lot of the immediate opportunities lie because a lot of those solutions aren't super complex technically, and they can deliver a lot of value, whether through its improved asset life, driving sustainability, but the real estate industry and prop tech really needs to step up its game. Mm. I received the report earlier and take a long read on it. And one of the things I noticed in the report is talking about cities. So why are cities at the center of this conversation? Well, that is a smart cities report, so it'd be kind of hard to do it if we didn't put them at the center. But about the challenges, I know, I know what you mean by that. I'm just playing with you. <laughs> They've actually brought it on themselves because, I mean, the cities got out there and built up so much hype. And they kept telling us that these cities are going to now transform the way we work, live and play. And now it's five years later and we're not seeing anything. And we're kind of going, well, you promised this stuff. Where is it? And then you realize it just gets a little bit messy and then people lose faith in it. So everybody's now sort of waiting for the cities to actually deliver on this. But it's also, I mean, it's not just the cities that built up the hype. The ICT industry did it as well. Because once the ICT industry saw that all these cities are going to go smart, they thought it'd be really easy to go and get some of these forecasted market opportunities. So everybody starts talking about how I can solve all your smart city problems. And it ends up just creating a really fragmented, overhyped market. So we try to go back to the center of this and look out at that whole ecosystem around cities to see what it is. So, but a lot of it is, I mean, they've made a lot of promises. We're just not seeing the delivery of it yet. Hmm. So this is where I want to get to ask you then, how do you define smart city now in the report? I understand you have asked different stakeholders for what they think smart city is, and then you try to look at it and basically come up with a proper definition on that. 
Yeah, we had fun with this one because I probably looked at over a hundred different definitions about smart cities and all of them focused on the technology side. And like I was saying earlier, this stuff isn't about technology. It's about people and the stakeholders. So when I looked at this, I wanted to break it down and say, well, who are the key stakeholders? So you've got your citizens, you've got the businesses and you've got cities. So I then tried to combine and make it into one definition that addresses the needs and requirements of all those. So unfortunately, it's a little bit long, but I think this is probably the most all-inclusive definition you'll find. So I would define smart cities as a set of policies and strategies that leverage technology and data to deliver initiatives that, number one, drive efficiency, sustainability, and improve decision-making for cities. Number two, create a transparent, efficient, and competitive environment for businesses and number three, improve inclusiveness, services, and quality of life for its citizens. So believe it or not, that took a long time to come up with because I tried to basically drive what people need and what they're going to be getting out of all these, all the major stakeholders. Mm. So what is the role played by the real estate in smart cities itself now? What I love about cities is, I mean, for the real estate side is every city owns probably you know, a lot of the buildings inside of that city. Everything we do is done in buildings. We live in buildings, we work in buildings, we go to restaurants in buildings. So they're really at the core of it, which means there should be a lot of opportunities. But I broke it down and we look at it in a few different ways. And this is how most of the real estate firms do it anyway. They look at their build environment. Um, so how do you build these buildings? And there's ways we can leverage technology now to start driving efficiency. Things like collaboration platforms and the design process and implementation process. It'll start driving operational efficiency for the businesses. A lot of firms are now starting to use VR, virtual reality, for the design phase, but also for tracking the progress of a build. So imagine this, normally you send somebody out to a new site if you're building it and they can go and look at the progress. Now you can do that all with virtual reality. Another area I like looking at is driving worker safety on sites. This is a big concern for a lot of these firms. What happens if somebody goes into an area? Are they following all the compliance procedures? So we're looking a lot at wearables for driving worker safety. That's on the build side. Once the building's built, then you got to manage it. So what I'm looking at now is a lot about how people are turning the data that's captured by the existing building management systems and turning that into actionable intelligence. That'll allow people to reduce energy costs, minimize asset downtime, increase the life of the assets, you know, and hopefully ensure a healthy and comfortable work environment. So that's on the efficiency side, but then we're seeing a lot more coming out now about smart workplace solutions. So things where we're creating heat maps so we know where workers go, how you can shift workers from one location of the building to another one to drive down your operating costs. And I saw a great case study on this out of Amsterdam. So they built this building there called The Edge. It's called the smartest building of the world. Just to give you a couple of quick stats on it. They use 30,000 sensors to monitor where the people are. But that allows them to only have 1,000 worker stations for 3,000 employees. So they know exactly when people come into work, where they work, and how they work. So some days they actually shut down floors because they know they're not going to have that many people. So that reduced their costs. But what was fascinating is they created this beautiful technology-enabled building, the number of job applications that they've received since they launched the building and made it their headquarters in Amsterdam has gone up 2.5 times. So that not only is it good for you know, sustainability and for driving operational efficiency, people want to go work there. And they're actually getting a lot of people applying there because they want to work in that style of building. So on the other side as well, you got to look at the investment bits. And this is where it gets a little bit more early days. We talked to a lot of people in the investment community about whether they see value from smart buildings. And the general consensus we got is not really yet in Asia. In Europe, they're much more conscious about driving sustainability in smart buildings because of regulatory requirements. 
this is just now starting off in Asia where they really tend to see the value in smart buildings is if you can just drive down the cost. So it's a very cost focused. It's not so much about sustainability yet. But overall, I think real estate, I mean, what they should be able to do is make it a lot more transparent. Right now, the way that the data is captured throughout the process of the real estate lifecycle is very siloed. And a lot of these systems don't talk to each other, which means it's very difficult to get an overarching view of what's going on and make decisions on that. With more transparency, this should actually change. Can the vision of a smart cities be realized then? I say, of course it can. I just think it's going to take a hell of a lot longer than we think. There was another stat that came out, another report that came out recently from Roland Berger. And they identified that you know, there's about a thousand smart city initiatives around the world. This came out in March 2019. So this is pretty up-to-date information. Of those thousand smart city initiatives, only 153 have a smart city strategy. Well, that makes you wonder what the other ones are actually doing. And of those 500 cities that had a population over 1 million, only 49 had a strategy. So you're talking about 10%. And of that 10%, only another 15 cities had a strategy that includes things like targets and activities. So then you're breaking it down again. And in the end, only eight cities out of these thousand went as far as to say that they have a strategy that includes implementation. So what's happening is you can see this. This is the hype. We've got the hype there. Then they start to make it a little bit more tangible by doing a high level strategy. Then they go down the next level and start saying, okay, well, we need to have some targets. And then finally, when you get into implementation, you know, that's where you're really driving some value. But as you can see, we had only had eight cities that they identified went that far, which is a very damning statement on the industry for right now. But the problem is right now is that these cities are very complicated. If you look at somewhere like Shanghai is my favorite example for this. Shanghai has 24 million people, 33 government agencies, 16 districts, 99 sub-districts, three counties, and 205 towns inside of one. So I would hate to be the person where they say, by the way, go away for a few weeks and write my smart city strategy. Because how do you write something that actually incorporates all those different stakeholders? So on this complicated city side, number one, you got to have a really solid project management office. Another challenge, of course, we mentioned the cultural change is difficult. I mentioned the quote earlier from Taipei. What Taipei has done that's different is they, they had a mayor come in, Mayor Ko came in about like four or five years ago, and he wanted to change the culture by making people accept failure, which means they wanted to test things and assume that everything doesn't have to always work. It's okay to do a pilot or a proof of concept and have it fail because we need to experiment to learn. So driving that cultural change is important. Governance becomes a nightmare. You look at somewhere like Tokyo, they have a very detailed strategy. They have 360 policies, targets with a four-year work schedule for each. So it's about how do you manage the governance of that level of a program? So once again, the PMO comes in to do that. But governments as well, like how do you do things like incident management across the city? These types of policies are important to set up up front. Once you've set up those policies, then you've got to navigate this incredibly complex solution ecosystem. You don't know the use cases. Every vendor is telling you, I'm the one that will solve all your problems. So which ones are real and which ones are just smoke and mirrors? And that ecosystem is fragmented. There's thousands of vendors saying that they're the best. We should be your strategic partner. Which one is the right one? And then, of course, even when you overcome all of those challenges, it really comes down to this. Where's the money? I used to always say that there's no cities writing blank checks. In reality, there's a couple. Dubai is pretty far ahead with everything on smart cities because they're throwing a lot of money at it and they're really driving some transformation. But for most cities, the funding is very limited. That's why a lot of them go down the proof of concept model, which is implementation. They don't have cash to do CapEx, so they want to do everything OpEx. And the vendor ecosystem is just learning how to actually drive this. 
So what you see is when they do actually bigger initiatives, it's all about doing public-private partnerships, the PPP model. In the report, you've looked at opportunities and challenges for different countries, such as Australia, China, India, Japan, and Singapore. What are the interesting points on the cities that within this set of countries in terms of the delivery of the smart city promise then? All right, we'll just start off with, like, with Australia on this one. I think there's a lot of a good appetite and there's some great examples there where they're driving things. Like they're looking at Western City with this new Aerotropolis initiative to create a second airport and business hub. But the, what I got across the board when we talked to people about the Australia market is it's a very fragmented market. The local governments are fragmented, so it complicates things when you want to try and engage with them. But the biggest issue they have right now is public trust is at an all-time low in Australia. So only 31% of the population trust the government. So that means it's very difficult to implement these things because they don't know how long this government is going to be in power. A new party comes in, wins the election, they change the strategy. So while there's a lot of appetite to do it, there's a lot of challenges to come organizationally. If you go into China, I mean, China, I love it just because, number one, it's the biggest market, it's the most exciting, the most dynamic. The government is outstanding at setting five-year plans with clear targets for technological advancement for industries. So it really sets a path for everybody to follow. One of the interesting things is, you know, they do a lot of PPPs in China, but they've actually had to shut down some of these public-private partnerships because of issues, meaning people haven't lived up to their requirements. So even when you start doing it on that scale, they have to try and get around the bureaucratic or sometimes bad business activities that go on in some of these deals. So... But I think that's the, really the most exciting market to watch. India is the one that's going to be the exciting one coming up, I mean, I'd say, in the next five to six years, but it's going to take longer. So they've set up a number of special purpose vehicles by the government to start driving their smart cities initiative, and they've targeted 100 cities initially. But engaging with those special purpose vehicles involves very long sales and monetization cycles, so it's difficult to make that model work. The other challenge they're going to have is everything will have to be manufactured and produced locally just to meet the price points. So we're not going to have a big MNC vendor based out of the U.S. saying, I've got a full smart city solution for you. I've installed it in Singapore and in Sydney. It's not going to work here. That price points won't work. It needs to be priced down. So I expect to see everything manufactured locally, which means I think there'll be a big boom in that sector. Japan's another exciting one. They got the Olympics coming up in 2020. So they're going to be trying to show themselves off as the most diverse city. But it's not just there. What I'm really fascinated by is some of the tier two cities especially Fukuoka and Toyama City, are trying to leverage their smart city initiatives to attract talent from the megacities, so from Tokyo and from Osaka, but also to attract foreign businesses to start off there. So especially Fukuoka is trying to make itself as a tech hub and an international tech hub, so making it easier for foreigners to go work there. But then in Japan, a lot of their challenges are much more on the demographics. Everyone knows it's an aging and shrinking population. I mean, you also have your deflationary risk. And this one, finally, of course, Singapore, since we both live here, one of the great benefits that Singapore has is the political stability. So they can set very long-term targets and go ahead to meet them. It's a very business-friendly environment, and it is one of the leading global players for things like smart mobility, healthcare, and safety. Now, the challenges they face, and this is what in my view, this, they take a very conservative approach to smart city trials. Singapore's model is that we will deliver this and it'll work and it will be secure. So what I think they could actually benefit from is more of an appetite for calculated risk. So much more of that Taipei model that allows the acceptance of failed projects. Whereas in Singapore, the proof of concepts and pilots, in my view, tend to go on a little bit too long. I'd like to see more experimentation and driving real innovation there. So with the countries, which smart city or a set of smart cities are interesting to you at the moment? 
Like I said, Singapore is an interesting one. Taipei's strategy is my favorite, but that's just because I like experimentation. We need thousands of new use cases, and they're not just going to pop up. We need to experiment and see what works for citizens, for the businesses, or for the cities themselves. So we got to find ways to identify these new ones. The ones that I like outside of that, I keep tracking Darwin quite a bit out of Australia. I recently met the guy, Jeff Sattler, who heads up their Smart Cities Initiative. They're known as one of the more dynamic ones, and they benefit from a few things. Number one, it's a smaller city, so there's less bureaucracy. They can just go and implement it. And they just finished implementing a large-scale project there for smart cities that was delivered on time and on budget, which, let's face it, in smart cities isn't always happening. So I like tracking that. Fukuoka, I'm fascinated by because it's not only trying to take away business from the local competitors of Tokyo and Osaka, they're really going after that international community. And then when you look at it globally, there's some really interesting initiatives that are being done, some of the city brain projects that are being done in China to transform traffic. Those things get really exciting for me as well. So I think that's a lot of fun to watch. But to be honest, everyone says, you know, give me your top 10 cities or smart cities in the world. And I say that'd be a blank piece of paper. I don't think we have smart cities yet. We're leveraging technology. We're making steps forward. We're not at the promised land yet. There's a long way to go before we're going to reach it. But what I just like is trying to pick out the best practice from the ones that are trying to make a real effort. So where do we go next for smart cities now? Where next? This is it. For me, it's all about more collaboration. You know, I'll keep you know, getting up on my soapbox about this one, I think, for as long as I live. is We have the technology to do whatever we want, but we don't. So why is that? A lot of it comes down to people. So I like seeing more collaboration. I mean, there's a few different types of initiatives that are happening around this right now. You've got, you know, ASEAN basically created the ASEAN Smart Cities Network, which connects up 10 member countries across the group in a number of different cities to try and set a strategy in place and leverage each other's best practice to start driving smart cities in ASEAN. And I like that because it's a city's perspective, cities working together to collaborate. So that makes sense. Then you've got other things like what you're going to have in China with the PATH initiative. And this one, I mean, conceptually is fascinating. PATH means it's Ping An, which is basically bringing in their smart city platform, Alibaba for the mobile and online payment platform, Tencent for the communications platform, and Huawei for the core hardware, smartphones, and networking equipment. So they're bringing these four vendors together to package up smart city initiatives for the 500 or so smart cities you have in China. So I think that one's fascinating because you've got the vendors coming together saying, all right, I'm best at this, you're best at this, let's package it together and make it easier for the cities to do it. So that I like because you're bringing together the vendor side. But the one I'm going to be really tracking over the next year is the progress of the Global Organization of Smart Cities. And that's a Taipei-led initiative, but it has, I don't know, somewhere between 160 and 200 different cities from around the world and industrial players, technology vendors getting together to share. So it's not just the cities sharing. It's not just the vendors. They all sit around a table and talk about what we can do and how we can share it. Now, this conceptually makes a lot of sense to me because if I'm a startup and I'm trying to sell something to Taipei, if I want to sell to another city in Taiwan, I have to do the whole sales cycle all over again. And then if I want to go to Amsterdam, it's all over again. What this actually does is they're going to be sharing best practice across the vendor community and the cities. So it makes it easier for the startups to drive this as well. So Charles, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing this report on smart cities that you have done with JLL, which I think it's probably give us a little bit of good assessment of what is really going on and what do we really need to do to reach the smart cities vision. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. The first question is, can you recommend a book, podcast, or anything else that have made an impact to your work and personal life recently? This is an odd one. I've done a lot of podcasts with you before, and I always come up with something different. To be honest, for me, what was really interesting on, for me recently 
was reading through all the interviews. So I interviewed, like I said, about 30 different people and getting different perspectives on this from different countries really changed the way that I look at cities. And what I was really pleased by is nobody really rambled on about how great the tech is. Everyone is starting to realize that it's all about people. And for me, that is a big step forward for the industry. So unfortunately, I can't share those <laughs> interviews in their entirety, but it's really been fascinating and it's really had an impact on my view of the status of the industry and I wasn't expecting it. So how do my audience find you then? You can find me on LinkedIn, I'm Charles Reed Anderson. On Twitter, I'm CRA Singapore. And probably most importantly, if you want to get access to this report, I will send you the link for this burnout if you want to send it out. It's too long to read out, but you can type in JLL Smart Cities Success and you should get access to the JLL site where they're going to be hosting it, the white paper. Thank you very much on that. You can Google me at Bernard Leong. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAS, Himalaya, Luminary, and Spotify. You can definitely tweet to us on the feedback. This podcast is co-produced by Carol In and myself. And of course, we are always ready to hear what you have in mind for the podcast itself. So once again, Charles, many thanks for coming on the show. And let's talk again sometime soon. That sounds great. Have a good day.